So if you're wondering where Josh Golaxon is and the whole Golaxon family uh, this Sunday and why this is kind of like an intern Sunday with Chris and me, with our two ordained people not in the room, uh, Josh is at Resurrection Presbyterian Church preaching there and baptizing Pastor Bob's son uh, this morning, which is kind of a, a great treat for, for Josh to be able to do that and uh, just kind of a fun picture of our connection with other churches in town that we're not really here doing this on our own. We're not the only church that's preaching God's word in this town and that we can have those sort of close relationships with other church, churches that even our pastor would go and um, baptize the son of another pastor in town and preach at their church, which is a great thing. So I think I've started my last two sermons. Both of those were actually during the stay-at-home stuff, and that was really weird, preaching in our dining room into a mic. But I think I've started both of my last sermons asking a question, and I'm going to do the same thing again today. I like making people think. So I want you to think about how you would answer this question. What's more important, to have good theology or to have a relationship with God? What is more important, to have good theology, to have good, right knowledge about God, or to have a relationship with God, to have a personal connection with him? And I see some of you smiling at me, so you know that this is actually a trick question, that good theology and a relationship with God are never actually meant to be separate things, that good theology, by definition, must be applied theology, theology that leads us into deeper fellowship with the God that we know, the God that we know things about. And a true relationship with God means that we also desire to know the one that we love. I've heard this compared often to a marriage, and maybe you've even heard me use this analogy when talking about the interplay between theology and relationship. It's a lot like a marriage, that I wouldn't ever just want to know a set of facts about Lexi, like her hair color, or even the amount of hairs on her head like Chris was talking with the doll. I don't just want to know facts about my wife. I also want to know her deeply in a relationship. But I also wouldn't dare to go to Lexi and say, you know, Lexi, I really just want a relationship with you. I really just want to love you, but I don't, I don't have to keep learning more things about you, right? Like, I can, now that we're married, I can stop studying you and, and learning all these fun facts about your childhood and all that. I don't really need to know you anymore. That would be foolish, right? So both of these things need to go together. Our knowledge of God and our relationship with him. But this is where I want to challenge you guys a little bit. I think it's easy for us to hear these things, the connection and necessity of both of these, and instantly to critique the people that might fall on the other side of the aisle from us. It's easy for us here at Livingstone Church in a historically reformed church with a 200-page doctrinal statement to look at what we would call maybe a wishy-washy, teddy bear, you know, Jesus is your boyfriend theology, and say they don't get it. They don't desire to have a true, deep knowledge of God like we would have. But I want us to recognize that a cold, dead, unapplied orthodoxy is just as dangerous as having no theology at all. One of our great dangers is having a theology, I think, that's simply abstract, it, or it's simply theoretical. We think about God being out there somewhere, and we know some things about this God that just might be there somewhere. And it's okay to have abstract knowledge or theoretical knowledge about some things, right? I love studying World War II airplanes, 
but that's never going to be practical knowledge for me. I'm never going to fly a P-51 or probably even get my pilot's license. But that's okay, right? It's okay that that's just purely theoretical knowledge. But why can't we have merely theoretical knowledge of God? Well, because theology, at its very heart, isn't the study of a thing. Theology is not the study of a thing or a concept to know stuff about. Theology is the study of God, a glorious and transcendent God, but also an imminent and personal God. So to truly know God, we must know him as a person, or Trinitarian as, as three persons in one. But whether you're the type of person that falls onto the more I want to know things about God side, or the I just want to have a relationship with God, but I don't really need to know all that theology stuff side, I think we both need Psalm 139. We need what it has to say. It challenges us to think higher thoughts about God, but then to apply those thoughts about this glorious and majestic and powerful God to our relationship with God. And that's going to be our main point for the day. So if you're taking notes, which I see a few of you are, our main point for today is this. We must learn to apply our theological knowledge about God to our understanding of our relationship with God. We must learn to apply our theological knowledge about God to our understanding of our relationship with God. So with that, let's go to God's word. We're going to be again in Psalm 139. If you have one of the uh, pew Bibles, one of these uh, in, uh, thin line ESVs, it's on page 521. And if you don't have a Bible, I'm sure you could ask someone here to help you find one in the back. Uh, it'll be helpful for you if you're following along, or maybe you can pull one up on your phone if you don't have physical copy with you. But let's go to God's word in Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. 
Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Great Father, speak to us the words of life. Father, teach us who you are. Cause us to see you in your majesty with the eyes of faith. Plant your words in us that we may become more like Christ. Uproot sin in us and lead us in your paths. Father, your words are the words that we need to hear right now. So help us to listen with expectation and with humility. Amen. Again, our application is this. We must learn to apply our theological knowledge about God to our understanding of our relationship with God. And we're going to see this main idea play out in four sections, which are each broken up by six verses as we walk through Psalm 139. So verses 1 through 6, 7 through 12, 13 through 18, and then 19 through 24. And each of these chunks are going to show us and focus more specifically on one attribute of God, and it's going to apply that attribute of God to our relationship with God. So let's start with verses 1 through 6. And the point here is that the all-knowing God knows you. The all-knowing God knows you. So let's start at the beginning in verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. And those two main words there, searched and known, are the key words in one way for this entire psalm. But they're really the key words uh, specifically for these first six verses. They're repeated often. Verse two, you know when I sit down and when I rise. Three, you search out my path. Verse four, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Verse six, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. What David is picturing here is God doing an investigation into David, which is why there's the word search. The Lord is searching out David. And what does God know about David as a result of this search? God knows everything about David. God's knowledge of David is exhaustive. God's knowledge is complete. And David makes this clear by using a literary device called a mirrorism. And mirrorisms are important throughout the Old Testament. They're used often, especially in places like the, Psalm, the Psalms. And what a mirrorism is, is it uses two opposite concepts to describe the whole of something. So in verse 2, when David says, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, he's not just saying God knows when I'm sitting and when I'm standing. He's saying that God knows everything about me by using these two opposite concepts. And he does it again in verse 3. You search out my path or when I'm active, when I'm going places. Search out my path and my lying down. And sums it up, you are acquainted with all of my ways. God knows everything of David, including his thoughts in verse 2, his ways in verse 3. God even knows the words that are on David's tongue before he even says them 
or even before they're on his tongue, God knows what David is going to say. But David's driving home with all these concepts, the all-knowing nature of our God. Now, if you want the big theological word for God's all-knowingness, which is itself an awkward word to say, the theological word is God's omniscience, that God is omniscient. But what's great here, and what we need to see, is that David's not just writing a theological treatise on the omniscience of God in general. He's talking about God's omniscience applied to God's knowledge of him. It's not just that God knows everything, though he does. God knows everything about every bird and every tree and every star and every atom floating in this world. But for David, right now, what is important is that God knows everything about him. Have you ever met someone that's like legitimately an expert in their field? Maybe a professor that you had or just someone that you met maybe while visiting a museum or something or just a friend you have that's legitimately one of the top experts in the world in their field. I've met a couple and I think the most amazing display of knowledge that I've ever seen in my entire life was for my church history class down in Orlando a couple years ago. My church history professor did 20 hours of lectures in a single week without any notes. And his lectures were engaging and informing. And it blew my mind that this guy just had that much information stored up in his brain that he could just spew it in such an awesome way. But there are experts around the world in tons of different things. Just imagine, there is an expert somewhere out there in the world that is the foremost leading expert on sea slugs. Right? Seriously, there is. There's, there's an expert on sparrows. There's an expert in grass. There's experts in all these different things. But what's really neat is that any expert in any field only ever knows a tiny fraction of what God knows about that subject. God is the foremost expert on every topic that could ever be imagined. But what's great here is that God's not just the foremost expert in sea slugs and weather patterns and physics and medicine, but God is the world's foremost expert in you. God knows you better than anybody, and he knows everything about you. But why is this important if we're going to apply it even further? It's important because we were made to be known. We were created to be known deeply as people. It's most, one of the most wonderful things that you can ever experience, being truly and fully and deeply known by another human. Mark Futado uh, wrote a commentary on the Psalms, and he said this, to have an intimate relationship with someone is a deep longing of the human heart, perhaps the deepest. To know and to be known and loved is the soul's passion. Such a relationship is the heartbeat of Psalm 139. And it also plays out in God's ability to protect us and to comfort us. Verse 5, you hem me in behind and before. That can be a military term of either surrounding your enemies and destroying them, but can also be uh, hemming me in, surrounding me for my protection. And that's uh, more of what David is saying here. God surrounds me and he protects me. And he lays his hand upon me, which also can be uh, punishment or laying your hand against someone, but also can be laying your hand in comfort. And again, what David is saying is that God can protect me and God can comfort me, not just because he's strong, but because he knows me. And then lastly, in verse 6, we can apply this by saying that God knows us better than we know ourselves. 
He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. And what knowledge is that? It's not just not God's knowledge of everything. God's knowledge of David is too much for David. It's far beyond him. It's high. He can't attain it. So not only does God, God know David better than David knows David, he knows him far better than David knows David to the extent that it overwhelms David to even think about the fact that God knows him so much and knows him so much better. And I think we need to apply this in our lives. I think we live in this culture of self-definition and self-determination. We like to think that we get to define who we are and what we should do with life. And nobody can stand on my right to define my own identity and my own calling, anything in life. Don't you tell me who I am and what I'm supposed to do. But if God knows us better than we know ourselves, then we don't get to define who we are. We don't get to define what we should do. God does. And if we really want to know ourselves, we don't turn inward. We don't look more deeply at ourselves. We listen to God. We go to his word. We study him and we say, what do you say about me? God, you are the leading foremo the foremost expert in me. I am not the foremost expert in me. And we need to do that over and over again in our life. Which brings us to our second point, verses 7 through 12. The point is this, that the all-present God is with you. The all-present God is with you. David introduces this section with two questions. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? He's saying, in essence, where could I run to? Where could I go if I wanted to get away from God? And his answer in this section is nowhere. There is nowhere that I can go where I could possibly get away from God. And he expresses this again using mirrorisms. He says, if I ascend to heaven, if I go to the highest heights, God's there. If I make my bed in Sheol, which is the place of the dead, it's the lowest of lows. If I go there, God is with me. God is there. So that's expressing the vertical axis. The highest heights, the lowest lows, God is there. And then he turns it and he shifts it to the horizontal axis. And he says, if I take the wings of the morning, here's a quiz question, what direction does the sun rise from? The east, right? So he says, if I take the wings of the morning from the east, if I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, and this is where you have to know geography, what direction does the sea lie from the land of Israel? To the west, right? So if I take the wings of the morning and rise with the sun in the east, if I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea to the west, God, you are with me there. So God is not only with me, uh, like all present vertically in the world, but all, all present horizontally in the world. He's making this, in a way, three-dimensional picture of God's presence everywhere, in all places, at all times. And again, the the idea is that not just that God is omnipresent in general, but that God is present with us, that we can't escape him. God is present in every location, but God is also present in every situation, which is what he emphasizes in verses 11 and 12. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. And the word cover in verse 11, 
it can also be translated in a way that carries the idea of being weighed down or crushed. It's actually related to the word in Genesis 3.15 for crushing the head of the serpent. And I really like the way the NASB translates this. It says, surely the darkness will overwhelm me. So it's not just the idea of being able to hide from God in the, dark, in the darkness, but also that the darkness is a situation, situation which is oppressing me. So what it's saying is that God is present with me even in the darkest times. Because the darkness isn't dark to God. It's dark to me. I don't understand it. I look around. I don't understand what's happening. It's oppressing me and it seems bigger than me, but it's not dark to the Lord. He sees me in it. He is with me in that place. And just like I asked for the first few questions, why is God's omnipresence, which is the theological word here, why is God's omnipresence so good for us? Well, because of what verse 10 says. It says, even there, in every place, your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. So wherever I go, whatever situation I am in, the God who knows all places and is in all places is the one who leads me. It's like having the God, the, the person that has the universal map and knows everything is the one that's leading us because he's everywhere. And it's also that he is holding us in those places, which is the idea of that right hand, your right hand will hold me. Wherever you see right hand, it's talking about the power of God, the strength of God. Wherever we might be, God's strength is there holding us, like a child in the arms of their strong father who's holding them and protecting them. God, with his right hand, holds us wherever we might be. Now, Lexi and I have been watching the show Alone. Does anybody know what that show is? Here we go. Thank you, Chuck. Someone knows what Alone is. It's this fantastic survival show. I grew up watching survival shows, but I think this one's my favorite. What they do is they take 10 people, and they take them, and they drop them off in the middle of nowhere in some of the harshest climates in the world. And they drop them off alone, and they each get to choose 10 things that they want to bring with them. And the person who survives the longest gets a half million dollars. But there's no time limit. It's not like if you make it to a month, you get a half million dollars. It's just you have to be the last one standing, and you don't know how long other people are lasting. So it's just pretty much I'm by myself in the middle of nowhere with a camera, and a satellite phone in case I need to call someone in to come get me if I'm in danger. And it's just survive. Survive on your own as long as you can, and if you can, you get this incredible reward. I just, I love it. I've, we've watched a season where they're in the Arctic, above the Arctic Circle in Canada. We're watching one now where they're in uh, Vancouver Island in the Pacific North, Northwest on an island that has the highest density of cougars in the world, um, which is fantastic watching people try to survive there. But what's really, what's really fascinating, though, I think, about watching this show is that people don't just tap out from the show because they can't meet their physical needs. You could think the only keys to survival when you're off alone in the wilderness is I need to build a fire, I need to get water, I need to have a nice shelter, and then I need to go get myself some food. But just as many people tap out from the show and leave the show because they miss their family, or because they can't handle being alone at night knowing that there are bears and cougars walking around this little tarp that they've built a shelter for themselves with. So it's really not just physical challenges, it's psychological. It's, it's more emotional and psychological than anything to try to survive alone. And I think that just reinforces the fact that we were made for presence. We were made to be physically with people, right? 
which is why Zoom calls never really completely replaced fellowship in the church during this time. It just can't do it. We were made for fellowship. And our relationship with God isn't like a Zoom call. It's not that God is far off, maybe sitting up in heaven, and we just have to like send out a line over the internet to try to get some connection with him somewhere. No, God's relationship with us is personal. He dwells with us, especially with his people in a special way, not in just the way that he's present everywhere. He's present with you if you are one of his children in a unique and special way. And we can have a real relationship with him. And he can provide for us. We can have fellowship. And we can trust in his strong arm when it feels like we're dwelling in a tent with a cougar or bear surrounding our tent in the dark. God is with us in that situation and in all situations. But David continues his meditation on these attributes of God by focusing on God as our creator in verses 13 through 18. The third main idea is this. The all-creative God made you. The all-creative God made you. And if you want the big omni word for this, does anybody know it? It's way less known than omniscience or omnipotence or omnipresence. I'm seeing confused faces. It's omnificence. So if you want a really fun word to memorize here, it's omnificence. It's God's all power to create, God's all creativeness. And so I was thinking of outlining this passage with the omnis. God is omni, omniscient, omnipresent. And then I just figured everybody would con- get confused if the main point is that God is omnif- omnificent, because you might just forget what that even means in a couple days. But God is omnificent. He is all-powerful to create. And I love the way that God's creation is described, not just as like an act of power, but an intimate act of God in verses 13 through 18. It says, you formed my inward parts. This is like a potter who's forming and molding clay. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. This is like knitting a garment. I I don't know how to knit, but I know some of you do. I did learn how to crochet in middle school, but I'm not very good at it anymore. But you knitted me together. So it's not just that God just made us in general, but it's this picture of him, him personally and intimately creating us. And he says... Uh, I was intricately woven in, in 15, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. And this is like the process of making a fabric from, from in, uh, intricate, and col- intricate colors and bright colors and weaving them together into something beautiful. And that is descriptive of God's work of creation. So what we see is that God didn't just make the world in a general sense. He didn't just make the world. He did make the world in a general sense. But he also created each person and every single one of you uniquely In a beautiful and intimate way, God is your creator. He made you, which is why there is immense value to human life even before we're born. And we need to be able to apply Psalm 139 to our world today. We need to be able to say, God created me even before the moment I was born. Even from the very beginning of my existence, God was forming me. And because I am formed by God intricately, human life has value, or even more because we are created in the image of God, that we have value. And so we need to look at anything that is an attempt to unjustly take away human life and say, that is wrong. It's an affront to the God who makes people. It's not just an affront to human life, but to the very creator, God himself. 
So we need to be able to apply that. And we need to be able to apply it broadly. We as Christians have a better foundation for the value, dignity, and identity of human life. We have the true answer to say, why does human life matter? Today it seems like people are, are boldly and clearly saying human lives matter, right? People have value, or at least some people have value in the different world systems that we see. But we can say why. We can say why do we know that human, human life has value? Why do people matter? Because we're created by God. So what, wherever the unjust taking or abusing of human life takes place, whether that's from abortion, whether that's from racism, whether it's from anything else, we need to boldly stand on the truth of God's creation. We need to apply our theology as Christians. But I also love that it doesn't just say that God formed us physically in this passage. Look, at, um, look a little farther down here in verse 16. Look how the word uh, formed is used here. It says that God formed my inward parts up in 13. Yes, he formed you too, Grayson. Um, formed my inward parts, but he also, in verse 16, he formed my days. Every single day of my walk on earth was formed by God and was written in his book long before my birth. Now this might bring up the honest question, what about the bad days that I walked through? What about the hard days? Did those days come from God too? Were those days written in his book long before my birth? Yes, those days were written in God's book long before your birth. And is that hard to understand sometimes? Yes, it is hard to understand. But this is where we need to remember, I think, who wrote this psalm. David wrote this psalm. Did David have an easy life? No, he didn't. He was the king of Israel, yes. He had some victories, he had some triumphs. But David also spent a, whole, a large chunk of a whole book of the Bible being chased around with Saul trying to kill him. David lost one of his best friends, actually his very best friend in battle. David lost one of his children. David had another one of his children betray him and try to take the kingdom from him. David didn't just have this cushy life as the king of Israel. No, but he can still say, God, you forming my days, every one of my days is good. It's not bad. And we see that throughout all of scripture, this emphasis on the sovereignty of God over us being not a bad thing, but a good thing. We see it with Joseph, with Job. We see it even most with Jesus. If you go to Acts 2, the day that Christ was crucified was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The day of Jesus' crucifixion was not outside the plan of God. And yes, it was great evil. It was the greatest evil and greatest hardship that any person has undertaken and gone under in this earth. Yet we can look back on it and we can say, Jesus' death on the cross, according to the plan of God, was good. It was good for us. And we don't always understand how this works in our lives. We don't always know, because God planned out all of our days, how all of the intricacies in our lives are going to work for good. But God's sovereignty is not a problem to be dealt with. It is a comfort to us. Because in the middle of anything, we can say, God, you are with me in this. And this is not outside of your control. And because I know I am yours, 
I know that even this hardest thing that I might go through is for my good, and it's for your glory, and I can trust you. I can trust my sovereign God. So God created us. He created ourselves. He created our days. And this ultimately leads to worship, which David does throughout this whole psalm, especially through verses 1 through 18. He just is talking about this great, these great attributes of God, and he just bursts into praise. He does it over and over again, but most in verses 17 through 18. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of your thoughts. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Which is a good reminder that any good applied theology must always lead to worship, to delighting in the God that we know. This leads, though, to the last section of Psalm 139. And there's a huge shift that happens. There's a big shift in Psalm 139. Uh, Josh has been introducing over the last two weeks kind of how we're going to be going through the Psalms this summer. We're approaching the Psalms uh, based on the different uh, genres or categories of the Psalms. And the first chunk of Psalms that we're in is the hymns. And then we're going to be going starting next week into the laments, and we're going to look at Psalms of confidence, Psalms of thanksgiving, wisdom Psalms, and divine kingship Psalms. And this week, technically, is still in the category of hymns. And that fits if you look at verses 1 through 18, because hymns generally are declarations of praise to God because of who God is, because of God's creation, which we see in the first 18 verses, and also because of what God has done more lar- in a large way in redempt- redemptive history. But it seems like the genre shifts at verse 19. What before is mostly indicatives, David's making declarations about what is true about God, and it shifts to imperatives, where, God, where David now starts making requests of God, which is very typical in laments. He doesn't just say, you have searched me and you have known me like he does at the beginning. Now he makes a request to search me and to know me. And I think this is actually really good for us, because next week, like I said, we're going into the Psalms of Lament. So this psalm actually kind of provides a middle ground, a psalm that kind of looks like a hymn, and it also kind of looks like a lament. So let's dive into this final point uh, here in verses 19 through 24. The point's this. The judge of the world is also the judge of you. The judge of the world is also the judge of you. And the imagined scenario here is of David standing in a courtroom. And the first first people on trial are God's enemies. That's in verses 19 through 22. And I want to just read these verses, 19 through 22 again. And I want, you to, I want you to make note of how you feel when I read these. I want you to make note of what your gut reaction is. Do you cringe at all when I read verses 19 through 20? So listen to these words again. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. So how did that make you feel? Did you cringe at all? Reading about David saying, I hate people? Surely he doesn't mean hate, right? Like, at least not like, hate, hate. Maybe it's like, you know, I just don't like them or something. Maybe they're, like, they're bad people, and I just want them away from me. 
No, he's really clear. He doesn't just say he hates them. He says he loathes them. And then, not just that he hates them, but he hates them with complete hatred. He counts them his enemies. David couldn't be any more clear about his mindset towards the people that are God's enemies. And this, again, is really challenging. And I think we need to be careful in how we talk about what's going on here. So I just want to share five quick, like, brief thoughts about how we can understand what David is saying here and how it can be applied. And a couple of these I borrowed from an article on the Gospel Coalition by Ray Ortland, uh, titled Gospel Militancy. So he, it's an article on these last verses of Psalm 139, and I think it has a great treatment of what's going on here. Again, it's called Gospel Militancy by Ray Ortland. So here are the five things we need to keep in mind. First, God's justice is a good attribute. The wrath of God against sin isn't a bad thing. We have an inherent understanding that evil needs to be punished correctly, and God would be a bad king if he wasn't also a just king. Therefore, when David cries out for God to slay the wicked, to bring justice against God's enemies, it's actually an appropriate prayer. It's an application of a true thing about God. Second, and this is really important, David doesn't hate these people because they are his enemies, but because they are God's enemies. Ray Ortland, he comments on this, this is so helpful, he says, gospel militancy is not personally spiteful. It's not that I dislike them because they're being mean to me. Now, Christians need to be able to withstand suffering and persecution and still pray for their enemies. So it's not because they're my enemies. It's actually because they're God's enemies and because I am loyal to my God that his enemies are mine. Third, this hatred is compatible with love for our enemies. That might be the hardest one, I think, for us to understand. This hatred is compatible with love for our enemies. We can't ever forget that we were called to love and to pray for even our worst enemies. And we can stand firmly, I think, against those people who hate God while at the same time loving them and praying for them. And this is where we can apply that God created people. That though they are enemies of God and deserving of his wrath and curse, they are also created by God. And because of that, I am called to love them as image bearers of God. Fourth, hatred of evil is a correct application of love for God. Hatred for evil is a correct application of love for God. Now just think about this. Through the first 18 verses, David has been meditating on all these wonderful and high truths of God. And then he thinks about God's enemies. And it's as if he's saying, God, you are so good. You are so gracious. You are so kind. You are so powerful. So how dare anybody say that you are not good? How dare anybody take your name in vain? How dare anybody be your enemies? That's not okay. Passion for God's glory also means that we're passionate against those who would take God's name in vain, against those people who would militate against this good and this gracious God. There needs to be a category for us to have something like righteous anger. And if we don't in any way feel something well up in us when people insult our God, do we really love our God? Are we really passionate for, our glo- for his glory if we just don't care? 
when people say things against him. No, we should care. Those things are compatible, and hatred of evil actually flows from love for God. But lastly, we must not ignore our own issues. And again, this is really easy, uh, really hard, <laughs> really important. It's easy for us to focus on other people and their rebellion against God and say, God, send down your judgment on them and completely ignore the fact that we were enemies of God and ignore the fact that we still sin. And what is sin other than rebellion against God? We rebel against God and we must not just look outward and say they are the problem. We must turn inward and ask as David does in this last section, search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And if we're honest, if God is to know us completely, he's going to see everything. And that's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing that God knows us, as I already said. It's part of a good relationship that God knows us intimately and deeply. But to be known completely is also terrifying, utterly terrifying, right? Because for him to know every detail means that he knows your thoughts. How would you like to walk around after church as you're interacting with people and have a comic strip thought bubble above your head that lists everything that you're thinking about the person you're talking to while you're talking with them? Would you be okay with that? No. Would you like to have a video displayed to your family and your best friends that displays all of the things you do when no one's looking? I hope not. No. So to be completely known is wonderful, but it's also really, really scary. And that's what David's doing when he repeats, search me and know me in verse 23. He's bringing what he started with, God has searched me and God has known me to a close. That God, please search me and please know me. So what about if, if you think about this and you think about God's knowledge of you and that kind of frightens you a little bit, how about maybe you try running from God then? Say, I don't want God to judge me. I'm going to run away from him. doesn't work. God is all present. You can't escape him. So what if you try saying, God, you have no right to judge me. You can't judge me. Only I can judge me. Well, good luck with that when God created you. God owns you. So again, all of that, the, the attributes we've seen of God can be great things for us, and they can also be terrifying things for us if they're attributes of the judge, right? The judge that we are standing other, under. Which brings the last question. How can we possibly pray these last two verses, asking God to search us and asking God to know us, if we know that the result of being searched and known is the revealing of all of our sin? Well, that, my friends... That's why we need Jesus. Only he could pray these words before his father. Only he could ask God, Father, search me and know me, and be found completely innocent. We don't have any hope to stand before an all-knowing, all-present creator God on our own merits. We simply cannot do it. If you have any inkling to think that you're a good person, hopefully these attributes of God throw that right out the window because he knows you. But if we stand before our God on the merits of Christ and his righteousness, then we can not only have hope, we can also have confidence to stand before God. And this is the heart of our justification before God, that all of our sins before him are pardoned because of Christ. 
and also that we are counted righteous before God, but not because of anything we have done, but because of the righteousness of Christ, as the shorter catechism says, the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, or counted to our account, and received by faith alone. So when we come before God by faith in Jesus Christ, despite our sin, despite all of our flaws being set on full display to the God of the universe, he declares us righteous. He declares us loved. He declares us pure. And when that is true, then all of the attributes of God are for us. God knows us for our good. God is present with us for our good. And God created us for our good and for his glory. Let's pray. All-knowing, always present God, you have made us with great care. Help us to apply these truths, the truths of who you are, to our hearts and lives. May we not simply know more, but be transformed by a true knowledge of you. Father, we praise you for reconciling us to yourself through the blood of Jesus, for clothing us in his righteousness, that we can stand before you no longer as enemies and rebels, but as adopted sons and daughters. Search us, O God, and know us. Show us our sin that we might repent, that we might trust our Savior, that we might live for you in this world. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen.